You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, go to sojournmontrose.com. We are in the middle of of Romans. Um, We're doing a series entitled Sinners and Saints, in which really we are um, hoping to discern what it is that that Jesus actually accomplished. Um, What is it that... um, that his death, that his life, death, and resurrection mean for us? What is, what is it that's been secured for us by that particular act? So um, as we do that, we are really today in sort of the climax of, of Paul's first argument in the book, or his first sort of point that he's laying out for all of us. Um, and so today, um, the sermon is titled, The Unrighteousness of Man, in which we will see really a vast contrast between last week, if you were here. Last week, we talked about the righteousness of God. And so um, what we've kind of done between uh, th- these last couple weeks is looked at the holiness, the goodness, the righteousness of God. And then we've looked at ourselves. We've sort of taken an honest assessment of who we are um, and how we measure up to that standard that God has. And so um, last week was all about um, God's righteousness, about how he's true, about how he's faithful. Um, and this week is all about how we're not those things. And so um, understand this, that um, we are in a book in which there's a, a progression of thought. And so um, don't judge the message of Romans sheerly um, by this particular text. It's a hard text. It's a difficult text. But its, its difficulty is what makes the, the, the beauty or sort of the release of tension next week such an amazing, amazing thing to behold. And so hang with me, hang tight, um, and we'll, we'll get through this. It'll be fun. So Romans 3. Uh, if, if you've never been here, we just kind of walk through it. It's really simple. Um, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No. Not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And so here's, uh, here's what we have to understand, or, or kind of where we're going. If you've been here throughout, um, throughout this series, you know that Paul's kind of been going back and forth. He's talking to a church in which there are two groups of people, both of whom have different claims, different reasons to sort of skirt um, what it is that the law, or what it is that the Bible would say about them. Um, and so whether it's the, the Gentiles sort of claiming ignorance and saying, you know what, I, ha- I didn't know about the law of God, I didn't know about the Bible, I didn't know about all these things, and so you can just kind of exclude me from that. Or whether it's the Jew that says, we have these things and thus we're good, um, all of them are sort of attempts to get out from underneath this weight that sits upon us, that is our conscience, that is the nature around us, that is the law of God, that is consistently, day by day, accusing each and every one of us. And so um, Paul, in, this, in these first three chapters, is really trying to establish one thing, and that is that all people um, have, have this one thing in common, and that is that they cannot save themselves. And so the, the ground, all of these other sort of distinctions that you could come up with um, between people, whether it's a, a racial distinction, whether it's a socioeconomic distinction, that all of those things pale in comparison to this truth, that there is a universal truth that defines each and every person in this room. And that truth is that uh, we are apart from God, that we are unrighteous, and that God is righteous, and that somehow there's a gap there, and that somehow um, there's got to be a way to fill it. And that is what produces longing in our hearts. That is what produces really the entire course of our, of our lives as we seek after ways to fill that gap. 
And so the greatest identifier is no longer Jew or Greek. It's no longer law or lawless. It's no longer black or white. It's, no long, it's, it's none of those things. It is simply this, that all are under sin. And so we have to ask ourselves, what, is it, what does it mean to be under sin? See, sin is not something that just scratches us on the surface. It's not something that's tangential uh, to our lives, which is just a big word for saying essentially it's not something that, that comes in for a little bit and then, and then makes its way out, but it's something that is actually on the very inside, something that we can't remove, something that we can't wipe away or clean away by any particular action. Rather, what Paul is saying here is that the weight of sin is so heavy that it actually presses down upon us. Paul is saying that because of our sin, each one of us, under the verdict of the law, is exposed to the judgment of God. We talked about that last week. And so here's the thing. When, you know, if you want to think about it this way, there's a very simple way to think about it. When, we're, when, we're, when we kind of have things going right for us, when things are going well, maybe we're succeeding in our workplace or there's an aspiration that we've kind of lived up to at some point, we say what? We say we're on top of things, right? Uh, yeah, I'm on top of that. I'm doing Everything's good. I'm on top of life right now. And what Paul is saying is that... <laughs> There's no way for us to be on top of of our sin problem. There's a root issue. There's a deeper cause. There's something inside of us that we can't be on top of that actually we're subdued by, that we are underneath um, this sin. And so here's the thing. When we we read Scripture, we really want to do two things. We want to try to understand it, one, from the vantage point of the believer, um, understanding the Scripture, what that means for us, for those who follow Jesus. And then we also want to engage with it from from sort of the viewpoint or the vantage point of someone who maybe doesn't believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that he's done what he says he's done for a couple of reasons. Um, One, the truth is true for both of those people, um, whether one would acknowledge it or not. Um, And then two, we need to understand um, the truth of this for our community, for the people that walk around us every day um, in hopes that we can communicate it in a way that's winsome, in a way that is um, that is honorable and that is still true to the core doctrine um, and yet shows the glory and the goodness of God rather than our own sort of ability um, or morality. And so here's the thing. If you're a believer this morning, when we read this verse, verse 9, what I would hope is that we would come to a greater capacity to feel the weight of this burden, the weight of sin in our lives. Because here's the thing. You and I as, as believers, and really even as unbelievers, have become experts at denying this. We become experts at looking at only the good things and really just kind of trying to push aside or marginalize um, the, the bad things, the ugly things in our lives. And this happens in every sphere, in, re, in our relationships, on, on social media, in all of these areas. It's all, we're always trying to present sort of the, our best face um, for the people around us. And the truth is that in, in us, okay, this is for, this is, if you're a believer, this is, this is true of you. This is, what, this is what you've been rescued from. But you, inside of you, there's nothing but death, nothing but darkness, and nothing but decay. There was nothing in you that, that God looked upon and said, that is, is worthy. In fact, we'll see in the next verse that he says the opposite. 
We like to dodge this so that we don't feel the burden, but it's actually in this sober assessment of ourselves that the measure of glory attributed to God for his salvation begins to increase. You see that? You want the gospel to become more real to you? You want the gospel to actually take root in your heart? You actually want to begin to understand what it is that God has done for you? You want, you, you want to feel a, a love for God? You, you want to be inspired by, by what he's done on your behalf? Take a good look at yourself. At just how worthless you really are at just how sinful you really are, at just how in opposition to God you really are. You are the complete antithesis of everything that he stands for. And for you, fortunately, we know that there's there's a but after that. If you're not a believer in the room, I'm not trying to scare you. I'm not trying to rile you up emotionally to get you to kind of come to some sort of conclusion that that you don't really believe in. But as much as you would like to deny Paul's assessment of our sinfulness, all of our sin, so notice how I said that, as much as you would like to deny that all of our sinfulness and our selfishness is is something that's not true, you, you can't escape it. You just can't. See, here's, here's what we like to do. We like to measure ourselves by the standards that we see around us. Maybe we look at a certain person and we say, okay, um, I'm doing okay because I'm at least less X, Y, Z than that person. Whatever that, you fill in the blank there, whatever that is, I'm less blank than that person. And so, so I'm doing okay. And so what we do is we take a flawed standard, which is the standard of the world, which is our own standard, essentially. We get to make and create and sort of be our own God. We take that standard and we say, according to that standard, I'm fine. But here's the thing. It's not a true standard. It's not a true measure. What Paul is saying here is that when we are measured by the standard, by the truth, that we are all unrighteous, and that that includes me, and that includes you. And so the logical question then follows, how can we escape this standard? How can we escape from underneath the crushing weight of sin? And here's the thing, whether you're, whether you're a believer in the room or whether you're not, um, I think this, the, the way that we do this is the same. The way that we escape this standard, the way that we escape this weight is that many of us try to do this by either denying God or by denying our sin. One of the two. And Paul Paul is going to give us the, the answer to this next week, but consider this. Is this weight, the weight of sin, the truth about who we are, the, the accusation that Paul levels against all people, so whether you're a believer in the room or not, this is for every single one of us. Is it perhaps that this weight is the fundamental barrier to people coming to God? Is it possible that in our very heart of hearts, we don't want God to be real because if he is, it actually makes demands upon us? See, the truth of God, the truth about who we are, the truth of our sinfulness, the truth of our selfishness is like a full-length mirror in which we get to see every imperfection, every impurity, and in which we see perfectly and clearly our evil, our shame, and our guilt. 
Let's continue reading verse 10. It says this. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, and together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And so here's the thing. We are, we're condemned because we don't live up to the righteousness that God requires. So last week when we talked about how God is righteous in spite of any other factor, that he is constant, that he is consistent, that his ways never change, that he is tried and true, and that, and that he will remain faithful to his word. We're the opposite of that. We, where, where God is righteous, we are unrighteous. And in case we were confused, in case any of us in this room, myself included, wanted to point the finger at somebody else, he uses words like none, not one, that all of us are unrighteous. And see, this is odd because if you've ever, maybe you've been to a church before, maybe you've seen uh, on the news where uh, they'll have a guy go and interview people just at random, like in a park or somewhere like that, a public space, a mall, um, and they'll ask this question. If, if God is real and you were to die today, where would you go and why? And more often than not, the answer is inevitably something along these lines. I tried to be a, a good person. I tried to live a good life. I, I went to church. I gave money to the church. I, I fed the poor. I fed the hungry. I, I didn't do this. I didn't do that. But what Paul is telling us here is that, that none of that is what will secure for us righteousness before God. That there's no hope in those things. That the things that we like to sort of reach back and pull out and be like, okay, what about this? No, okay, what about this? How about this? No, nothing still? Okay, how about this? That all of those things, there's no hope in any of it. And then he goes on to say this in verse 13. He says, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin." And misery and the way of peace they have not known. So here's the thing. We get a pretty direct contrast between us and God here, right? So last week when we, when we read um, in, in the first eight verses where it talks about how God is faithful in spite of unfaithfulness, where it says that um, God will be true even though everyone were a liar, what we see in, in this text when it talks about us, is that where God is faithful, we are faithless. Where God is true, we are deceivers, right? That's what he says in verse 13, that we use our tongues not, not to tell truth, not to speak truth, not to speak life and blessing, but to deceive. Where God blesses, we curse. Where God is patient and long-suffering, we are swift to shed blood. In, in this, we see sort of this measure of, of a ferocious and brutal human sin described for us. But here's the danger. When we see these lists of sins like this, or maybe you were here when we read in chapter 1, um, verses 18 through 32, it just kind of lists a bunch of things that are, that are just kind of bad things to do. Um, 
this might cause us to think of sin primarily um, in sociological terms, meaning that sin is only something that, that sort of affects the way we interact together as a society, that that's actually a problem that we can solve um, through sociological measures, meaning if we just begin to act a certain way, if we, if we say no to this and say yes to this, then we will progress, we will move forward. It says, okay, it says that we're deceivers, so let's stop deceiving. Let's stop cursing. Let's stop being bitter. Let's stop shedding blood. And yet the evidence all around us is that no matter how aware of those things we get, no matter how uh, many years sort of, of, of these things we've seen perpetuate themselves, that we can't escape those things. There's no amount of sociology, there's no amount of sort of right thinking that's going to rid us of this disease. Because it's not something that we can wash off. It's not something that we can just kind of get in the shower and get rid of. Paul reminds us here of the root and the basis of all sin when he says this, there is no fear of God before their eyes. See, sin is fundamentally a theological issue. And what I mean by that is what you believe about God, whether you believe him to be real and true and good and the standard of righteousness, or whether you disbelieve in him, whether you think that he is not those things, that there is no accountability, that your actions really don't matter, that there's no purpose to your life, that those, that, that belief is really what what is the root of all of our ailments as a society. That all of these things, all of these, um, these things that, that we dislike, that we probably all, whether we're believers or not believers, look at and say, yeah, that's not a good thing. That underneath all of that, that what defines that, that what perpetuates that is a lack of or a misunderstanding of the one true God. That in our failure to acknowledge him, not only inside of us personally are we tainted, are we lost, are we forsaken, but that everything else that happens, that all bad things find their root in, in this one simple thing, and that is that we have failed to acknowledge God for who he says he is. I mean, that's that. Paul, Paul wrote that to us in, in, uh, in the first chapter. So why are we still here is probably the question. Romans uh, 19 and 20 uh, tell us this in chapter 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So I, I love, I love this, this part right here where it says, so that every mouth may be stopped. So I want you to kind of picture this, because this is essentially all of our, this, all of our situation is, is this. Like this is our universal truth. This is our universal experience of, uh, <laughs> of existence. I mean, this is, this is it. Picture this like you're, like you're in a courtroom. You've given your most convincing evidence. You've passionately argued your claims. You've provided compelling witness testimonies. 
You've exhausted all of your knowledge, all of your rationale, all of your logic. You've stopped speaking. You've come to the conclusion of your argument. You've given all that you have to give, everything that you could think of. You pulled out every trick, every, every possible thing. You stopped speaking and the verdict remains the same. You remain accused. You remain guilty. You cannot, by the works of the law, be justified. It's impossible. What a hopeless moment that has to be, right? Like, if you imagined yourself in that situation for real, And you, you just recognize, look, I have nothing. I have nothing left to give. I've presented everything that I could have possibly presented. And it has done nothing to sway my future. It has done, I'm not going to get a, a break. I'm not going to get a, a quicker parole. I'm not going to get a lesser sentence. Like, that's it. It's game over. That's what, what Paul is telling us. He's saying that the law can do nothing for us except make us aware of our filthiness. We cannot rest on our good works as the grounds for our justification because he says, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in the sight of God. And so, we've gotten it wrong, I think, for in so many different ways uh, as sort of as a, a culture, a Christian culture, in that we are known more so by our morality than by our message. And that's a, that's a problem. Because although the Christian life does lead us to morals and it does lead us to morality and it does lead us to acknowledging God for who He is, it's pretty plain and it's pretty clear and it's pretty evident that it's not in our morality that we find salvation. That it's not in our ability to do a certain thing, to act a certain way, uh, to, to limit a certain behavior. Because what is underneath that is what accuses us. You see, even, even in our attempts to bless, even in our attempts maybe to speak truth, we can deceive ourselves too. So this sermon <laughs> is kind of like The Empire Strikes Back. If you've ever seen that movie, um, you, know, you know what happens at the end, right? Um, if you don't, I'll just recount it for you briefly because I enjoy it. Uh, but essentially what happens is um, at the end of the movie, Vader, Luke, going at it. Luke doesn't know that what's about to happen, um, obviously. Uh, really emotional moment. Uh, they're dueling it out uh, over like this ventilator thing. I don't, I don't know, some big, big hole. Uh, and he's like at the end of this kind of catwalk thing and, and they're fighting and, and uh, Vader's talking trash. And, uh, <laughs> and eventually like they, they get to a point where he, he cuts off Luke's hand and of course um, Luke's in, in agony, um, really bad acting, but uh, <laughs> nonetheless it was communicated. Um, I got it. 
Um, and so he's, but he's at the end of this catwalk and, and, and like, you're kind of going, man, you've been on this journey that's now two movies long. You know, you've invested a good six hours of your life and you're at the, you're at the end of this movie. You're like, what is happening? Like everything is horrible. Luke just got his hand cut off and he finds out that Vader's his father, you know, in that famous scene. And, and then what happens? Like to, to cap off the entire movie, he like jumps off the ledge. And I'm just like, what? Is it, is it roll credits, you know? I'm like, oh, awesome. I've, I hope there's going to be another one. Um, otherwise, that's just a really depressing end. I, I don't know if any of you guys ever do this, but I do this all the time in movies, um, be, especially lately. I don't know why there's, there's more and more really bad ones where, like, they're just simply implausible. Like, that's how my mind works. And so I guess Star Wars doesn't really make sense. But anyway, um, uh, Sins of my youth. Anyway, um, but I do this all the time where I'm like, okay, that's dumb. That would never happen. And so what if, what if the director was just like, okay, this is what would actually happen like in a real human situation and the movie was over in like five minutes. I always relish um, the idea of being able to do that. Like that's what I would do if I was Tarantino or someone like that. Um, just forego all the formalities and end it right then and there. Um, but anyway... All that was for free. Um, <laughs> here's the thing. Fortunately, there's a movie called The Return of the Jedi. Um, and even more importantly, the next verse for us in Romans, <laughs> the next verse in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, starts with this tiny little word, um, the word but. That word being the difference between heaven and hell. That word being what will introduce to us the full satisfaction of our longing. That word after which will follow the precious gospel of Jesus. You see, we have listened to the bad news of chapters 1 through 3 in order to hear the true goodness of the good news. And so here's the thing. Yes, we are wholly unrighteous tainted in, in every way. That is the problem. That is the core root of all of our strife. And we want relief from that. We do. Believer or unbeliever, you are looking for relief to this problem in, in one way, shape, or form. We want relief from guilt. We want to silence the pangs of our conscience that Romans chapter 2 tells us we have, that sits there, that accuses us, that tells us the truth about ourselves. We want justification for our lives. We want peace. We want purpose. We want love. We want justice. We want things that only God can give us. But here's the damning thing of all of it. We want things that only God can give us, but we don't want Him. The saddest part about this is that all of these things that we, we want are satisfied finally, fully, to, to, the, to the greatest degree possible in God. And He has extended them to us in the person and work of Jesus. All of these things, all peace, purpose, love, justice, relief from the burden of sin is available. It's untainted in our good and our gracious God. 
And so here's the thing. If I could encourage sort of the, the two groups of people, again, that, um, that are in this room, there's, there's no middle ground. You're either a believer, you're a follower of Jesus, or you're not. Um, believer, rejoice. Rejoice that he sought you. Because here's the thing. What, is, <laughs> what does verse 11 tells, uh, tell us? It says, none is righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. And so here's the thing, you didn't, you didn't arrive to this revelation about God just because you one day were like, yes, I believe that to be true. But that God actually sought you out, that he bought you with his blood. Rejoice in that. Press into the depth of your sin, knowing that there is grace enough to cover it. This is, this is the beautiful freedom of the, unbelie- or of the person who believes in Jesus is that we can look at ourselves and we can say, you know what, that's true about me. I don't have to defend myself anymore. I am sinful and prideful and arrogant and a liar. But you know what, because of what God has done for me, that's my defense. He speaks for me. I just have to sit Rest in that grace. If you're not a believer in the room, I would, I would encourage you to do one simple thing, and that's be honest with yourself. Be honest with yourself. Don't try to cover up the, the longing that you have in your heart that you know is there, that no matter really all of the things that you've tried, um, haven't, haven't lived up to. I would venture to say that's your case. If, it's, if that's not your case, I want to hear about it. I really do. And I don't say that to be antagonistic. I say that because um, I, I'm curious. Because I believe, I, I really believe that what Paul says here is true of all of us. And I really believe in my heart of hearts that I've, that I've found satisfaction in Jesus. And I, and I want that for you too. And I think that only is going to happen when you're honest with yourself, when you take a sober assessment of really what it is that's going on inside of you. That apart from all of the, the attempts to dull that, that conscience, to dull that pain, to, to sort of justify yourself and to remove yourself from the problem, we all know, I know, that I'm the problem. There's, there's a common denominator in all those things, and it's me. And so I would just ask for a moment for you to set aside whatever it is that, that you might have in terms of preconceived notions, uh, in any of those things, and really ask yourselves whether or not you are seeking for something that only God can give. Because only in him is there rescue from nature, from conscience, from the law, all of which accuse us. That's the, that's the central thesis of Romans 1 through 3, verse 20, is that there is nothing that we can do that everything in us condemns us. Whether we look around and we see the way the world works and we choose not to acknowledge God, whether we act or behave in a certain way in our conscience, something inside of us that we don't even know where it came from tells us that we're wrong, that we're accused, or whether it's we've read the Bible and we see that it tells us we're sinful. 
that we can only be rescued from those things, that we can only be redeemed from those things in Jesus. And so you don't have to be under sin anymore. See, there's, um, there's a myriad of implications for, um, for the gospel, both past, both present, and, and, and future. And so here's the thing. We've, all of us, all of us have been underneath the, the, the power of sin. All of us experience the presence of sin. But here's the thing. In, in the work of Jesus, he has brought down the dominion, the power of sin. That is the, the present reality. So your past, your past sin is erased, it's wiped away. Your present, although you still live in the presence of sin, you are no longer underneath the power of sin. You're under grace. We're going to see that later on in the book. And the future reality, the future implication is that one day we will be freed from the very presence of sin. So all three of those things will be wiped away. The penalty for sin that we deserved was placed upon Jesus. The presence of sin, although we battle it today, will be gone forever on a tomorrow soon to come. In spite of our unrighteousness and because of God's righteousness. Righteousness. 